This passage is not telling you to seek first his kingdom. It's not telling you to store up treasure in heaven. Definitely don't worry. It does have a lot to say to you. But it's not first and foremost about you, this passage. Actually, it's about the love, heart and prayer that the Lord has. So this passage is all about his desire, his joy that he has for his people and his kingdom. Of himself, Jesus says, no man has greater love than this. He's talking about himself and his great love. So today's sermon is not so much saying, um, you should love. I want every one of you out to get out there and love. It's actually about how he loves. Today we're going to be looking at the power and the beauty of his love for us. As we look at David, we see all this. First of all, uh, David is amazed, so that's point one, amazed. Then he, often, he offers praise, that's point two. And then finally he prays a prayer, amazed, praise, prayer. All of this is pointing to the love, heart, desire and joy of the king. But just um, before we get into it, why is that a good thing to look at? Why, why should we care about that, the desire that the Lord has? Well, because for some people, uh, church can become a real burden. Uh, for some people, church can tip them over the edge. Uh, some people become weighed down, stressed, burdened by the demands of their church. So good to hear that he loves his church in a way you or I never could. He loves his church more than you or I ever will. Isn't that good? Now, for other Christians, the worry isn't about church, but it's the state of our country. Same-sex marriage is, is, um, is where there's this it's pressure and persecution, and, and we worry about what's going on in our society or our world. For others, they think, um, why aren't more people becoming Christians? Why aren't we seeing that happen? Even though Jesus has gone away to the Father, it would be a fatal error to think he's unaware or uncaring, not only is he far more able than you or I could ever be to look after his people and look after his church, not only is he far more able than you or I could ever be, he's far more willing than you or I could ever be. Um, so that's why I say the passage isn't about you. Instead, it's about the love, joy and heart that the king has for his people. And as we see that, that's going to lift us up too. That, that's going to uh, put a confidence in us too, a smile on our face uh, and a peace in our heart as well as we look at all of this. Uh, so first of all then, David is amazed when he hears this promise of God. He's amazed. Look at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? It's actually only six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. So that means Bethlehem to Jerusalem was a 10k walk. Some of you here could do it in an hour uh, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. But David's saying, who am I that you brought me this far? He's saying, it's a, it's a whole world apart. Light years separate Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Bethlehem where I grew up to Jerusalem where I am now, he says, it's, it's, it's a universe that, that are between those two things. You could drive a universe through them, the middle of those two. 
He's not so much thinking of the 21 chapters it took, spread out over 10 years, full of dangers, escapes, treachery, folly, despair, madness, slander, how he could have been easily killed 10,000 different times, but the Lord saved him out of every single one. That's actually what he said back in chapter 4. He said, the Lord saved me out of every single one. But he's not thinking of that. Bethlehem, where he was born, is worlds away from Jerusalem, where he's now king. Because he was just a teenager when he was called. He, he was hardly more than a boy. He was out the back looking after his father's sheep. And now look at him, would you? King over God's people in all the world. God has just promised him that one of his sons will be on the throne forever and ever. A kingdom without end. And that's why he says, who am I? That's why he says, you've brought me this far. He says, anyone else in the distance wouldn't have been so great. But you chose me, the furthest person away from being a king. The least likely, the baby brother with seven older brothers. Who am I that you've brought me this far, all this way? Only six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Um, what's that? That's here to Devonport. Is that right? Is that about that? Here to Devonport, maybe? You know, you could walk it in an hour. But, but he says, no, this is worlds apart. Look, God, there I was. Look at me now, hearing these things that you're saying to me now. Now, we might be tempted to think that Nathan's experience of receiving the vision was more extraordinary than the one David got. So David has just heard the word of the Lord from Nathan. This word was passed on to him by Nathan, who received it in a vision. Nathan received it in a vision, passed it on exactly to David. And we might be tempted to think that Nathan's experience of receiving was more extraordinary than David, who only got to hear it secondhand, you know. Not so. No way. Not at all. The word of the Lord that comes to Nathan is the exact same one that comes to David. They are not put on two different levels. They might be experienced in different ways by Nathan and David, but that is not what matters at all in this chapter. I love how God does this. It's not the messenger and who gets to be the messenger and what things they get to do as the messenger. Um, it's not about the experience of the messenger. What is it about? What does God care about? The message. And who will hear the message? That's the main thing. Whether you hear and heed. You could be a prophet. You could be a priest. You could be a king, a farmer, a teacher, boy, girl, soldier, whatever. It doesn't matter. The question is not what experience did you have. The question is, will you listen? Will you hear? David does. He does hear the word of the Lord, and his prayer is a response to that. And he says, who am I that you would bring me this far? He says, amazing. He goes on. Um, there, he says, though it's far from me and though it's worlds apart from me, it's only a small thing from you. What was one giant leap for David was just a small step for God. And this small step for God is just the beginning of his work. David says, you will use this work in my life to bless the whole world. The whole world's going to be blessed by this work you've done for me. See verse 19. And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this degree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human well, literally he says, literally he says there, this work is for all people. 
That's what he literally says. This promise, this plan, this blessing to me is actually going to be a promise and a plan and a blessing for the world. All people of the world are going to be blessed because you've given me this promise and you'll make it come true. And so David is lost for words. He says, I've got nothing more to say. Have a look at verse 20. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. I am lost for words. I've got nothing more to say. But even if I did have something more to say, he says, you would know that too. You would already know what I was about to say. You would know that in advance of me even saying it. You know me. You know me better than I know myself. David isn't just talking about how you know, God knows all things, so he knows if a sparrow falls to the ground, he numbers every hair of our heads, and for some of his, you know, that's easier for God with some of us than it is for others. Um, he, he's not just talking about God's knowing, he's actually talking about God's particular knowing of him. He says, you know me because you made me. You took me from, from a shepherd boy out on the hill under the stars, watching over my father's sheep, and you made me into what I am, the king of Jerusalem. It's entirely, that from there to there, that was entirely of you. And it was huge for me. It was worlds apart, but it was a small step for you. And so even if I did speak, even if I did have anything more to say, you would already know that. Like an inventor who knows his invention, inside and out, God knows David, because God made David. See, none of this is about David's ability. None of this is about David's goodness or skill. None of this is about David's heart. It's about the knowing, choosing work of God to create him as the king and, and lift him up as the king. David is amazed at God's work to bring him this far. Not just gratitude, thanks, but wonder and surprise. John Newton wrote the most famous hymn in the Western world, which is? Yeah. Books have been written about this hymn. Performances and even movies now about John Newton and this song and Newton's life. Many of you know that he was a slave trader and a sea captain. He was rugged. He was very abusive. And he was even himself abused. Many of you will know that he was kidnapped himself into slavery and he was kept in Africa for two years before he was rescued. He believed that God saved him out of all of that and saved him to be a Christian by his amazing grace. And do you know that even after years and years and years of being a Christian, so after years and years of, um, of living the Christian life, after years and years of being a, a minister, he was a church minister for 43 years actually, after years and years of looking after people and having them come and live with him in his home, one of whom was the great hymn writer William Cooper, who suffered a lot from mental health issues and mental illness, even after years and years and years of that, John Newton never lost his wonder and surprise at God's amazing grace for him. And in his last will and testament, just before he died, he said this. He said, I commit my soul to my gracious God and Saviour, who mercifully spared and preserved me when I was an apostate, a blasphemer and an infidel. And he delivered me from the state of misery on the coast of Africa 
into which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me. And he has been pleased to admit me, though most unworthy, to preach his glorious gospel. He never, ever lost his gratitude and surprise at what God had done for him. Now, it's that, that is behind Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that great hymn. If you're not a Christian here today, I think most of you are, but if you're not a Christian, I'd like you to hear something really important. Believers who are here, we don't think that we deserve to be Christians. We don't think that we should be or that we just get to be because of being born or because of being good people. We are like David. Yes, being a Christian is normal to us now, but it's still really surprising. And sometimes we Christians, we stop and we think about it and we go and we shake our head and we say things like, why me, Lord? You know, when there are so many others in the world, why would you choose me? Why would you save me? And and even as I've been sort of explaining these verses, I've noticed a few nodding heads, just nodding away there. At, at the joy and surprise. They're, they're agreeing with David. Have you guys heard of the Pew Moo? Have you heard of the Pew Moo? It's when people go, mmm, mmm. And, and see, um, the nodding heads and the moos of agreement are because we Christians really relate to these words of David. We could say them, couldn't we? We could say, who am I, Lord, that you've brought me this far? We could say, um, this is just a small thing to you, but, but, but what a great thing it is for me. There are countless stories of Christians who aren't just thankful, but they are genuinely surprised at God's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. So I'd like you to hear that if you're not a Christian. Please think about that today. Think about what it means. That, a, that being a Christian is a surprising rescue by a merciful God. An unexpected rescue by a great God, something undeserved. Now, it's true, I I will grant, it's true that a Christian can forget this truth. They can lose their surprise and their gratitude. They can fail to even get it from the start. In fact, do you know, for a number of years after becoming a Christian, John Newton remained a slave trader. So he was a Christian and a slave trader, and that was something that he regretted heaps later on in his life. But as a Christian grows, they will be touched by the mercy of God the mercy of God which brought them this far. Not just touched, but softened by the mercy of God. It it softens their life. Uh, Their amazement at God's mercy softens them and it makes them start to care for people and be compassionate towards people. One of the things that John Newton was known for later in his life, in fact, do you know what? He was even criticised for it. They said, look, mate, you're a church minister, but you're too nice isn't that amazing? From, from rugged, salty slave trader to somebody who was criticised for being too soft, too nice, too generous. In writing to a friend, John Newton describes the average believer's life and he says, he says this, A Christian believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and he lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gives him an habitual, an habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. In other words, he says, we feel the, 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 the mercy of God, the surprising mercy, and it makes us soft toward other people. How are you going with that as a Christian, huh? Tenderness and gentleness of spirit. 
Hmm. How are you going with that in your life? Are you known for habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit? Does that mark you out from the rest? Are you making progress in that? Just think for a little bit about the words that come out of your mouth. You make a comment, have a snigger, a cynical, sarcastic statement, mocking word. How easily it comes out. So easy. It comes out of my mouth like breathing, like air. Loose, unedifying comments. But do you know what? Once you really get hold of God's amazing grace that has brought you this far, you don't do that anymore. That, that stuff, that goes. That kind of speech is left behind because you live upon God's pardoning love and great love. And mocking, wor- mocking words are just not compatible with that. The opposite of that. Just think about what comes out of your mouth. You criticise or speak about others behind their back. You speak as if you're so right and they're so wrong and they're so silly, but you're, you so understand. But once you get God's amazing grace that has brought you this far, you don't do that. That kind of speech goes. That's left behind because you say, I am what I am because of God. If not for him, I'd be left behind. Don't be a Christian who is known for their loose and unedifying comments. Don't be a Christian who is known as a grumbler or a criticizer or someone who is not trustworthy. Keep those comments to yourself. Or better yet, train yourself so you don't even do them in the first place. A Christian feels and believes his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. That gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Now, we haven't even started on anger yet. We've only just been talking about speech. Anger that comes out of frustration. Anger that comes out of contempt. We haven't even started and don't even have time. We actually don't have time. I'd be here all day. Why don't you, though, take time to think about anger in your marriage, anger in home, anger in workplace? Confess where you're at with that. David is amazed. And so then that leads him to praise, which is point two. So point one, he was amazed, surprising mercy of God. That led him to praise, point two. And here we really start to see his desire coming through now. The love of the king. The love of the king comes through. Have a look at his um, praise there in verse 22. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out the nations and their gods from before your people whom you have redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Nowhere else in the rest of Samuel do we hear these words. In fact, hardly anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. There's very rare words that are being spoken of here. So rare, right? But in this passage, it actually comes up seven times. And maybe eight. You see it in 718, 719. 719 again, 720, 722, 728, 729. David says, these are the rare words, O sovereign Lord. Or literally he says, my Lord God. And, and it's excellent that he would say this because in the passage we looked at just before morning tea, God called him my servant David. And they correspond to one another. So God says, my servant David, and David responds and says, my Lord God, my servant David, my Lord God. 
Um, incidentally, one of the other places, I said it's very rare for this title of God, one of the other places is by Abraham, after God gives him great promises too. And there, Abraham also responds by saying, My Lord God. David says, I am amazed, my Lord God, point one, therefore I will praise, point two. It makes me wonder, my Lord God, point one, therefore I will speak about it, point two. Um, that's what's happening in this point uh, that I'm making. Um, he's, he's talking about God's wonderful promises to him. Um, and the first thing he says about it in his praise is that God is great, meaning above, great is above, great is beyond, and great is especially unique. Unique. There is no other God who does this kind of thing. There is no other God who acts in this way. Other gods, ancient gods, they don't do this stuff. They don't just pluck a shepherd boy off, off a hill, turn him into the great king and give him promises of a son who will rule forever. He says other gods don't do this. Do you know what? With the other gods, it was payback at best. So if you did, if, if, if you did something... The best you could hope for is that a God might kind of go, all right then, here you go. If you were, if you were devoted to your God and worshipped your God and poured out special love, then the God might go, okay, you can have some then. Payback at best. But, but look at this unique God, that he would take someone without them even realising and turn them into this great King David. And so um, he says, God, you are great, you, you are unique. Um, he says, you've only got to look at the Lord's people if you want to see that. You've only got to look at Israel if you want to see that. He, he, he says, um, if, if you want to see what this unique God does, how he, how he gives mercifully to his people, unlike any other God, he's, look at Israel. He says, um, they have been redeemed. They have been preserved and they have been privileged. See verse 23. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out the nations and their gods from before your people. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. They, and, um, as your own, and you have become their God. See, they are redeemed, they are preserved, they are privileged. Um, they are redeemed. This means that God picked them up and he brought them out. Actually, he didn't, he didn't bring them out. He bought them out. He paid the price for them. That The price they should have paid, he paid it so that they could come out. The, the, the lamb was sacrificed so that they could come out. He bought them. That means redeem. Redeem is, is about buying he bought them out of Israel. And then he says they are preserved. Uh, preserved is um, they will always be his people. He's established them for all time. At the end, they will still be there. He's not gonna, they're not gonna, his people are not going to go along, along and just drop off. Oh, yeah, God used to have a people, but he doesn't really have a people anymore. No. They are redeemed. They are preserved. They will be there to the very end. Uh, and then they are privileged. Um, he doesn't just redeem and preserve, he gives himself to be their God. He actually binds himself to them. 
He actually says, I will be your God from now on and forevermore. You are mine, I am yours. Together we go, we're linked. We go arm in arms together. Doesn't just redeem, doesn't just preserve, but he gives himself to be their God. Who does this? Which God does this? If you want to see how great God is, if you want to know how he's unlike any other God in all the world, if you want to look at his people, look at what he's done for them. And as you look at his people, that reflects back like a mirror that reflects back on the great God who did this. David is amazed, therefore he offers praise. Uh, The Mona Lisa is a half-length portrait of a woman by the Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci. It has now been it's now been acclaimed as the best known, most visited, most written about, most sung about, and most parodied art work of art in the world. It's actually the most parodied work of art in the world, which means it's it's mimicked and copied. Um, and so there's the Miss Piggy Mona Lisa. There's the Grumpy Cat Mona Lisa. There's the, uh, the Pikachu Lisa for all you Pokemon fans. There's the Beyonce Lisa for all you pop fans. And someone even did the Mona Pizza, which had her face, but it was made out of pizza. Right. See, we all know about who painted Leonardo da Vinci, but very few of us know about her and who she is and what her story is. That's exactly like David. That's exactly like Israel. Because the question is not, Oh, who are these people? That's not the question. The question is, who is their Lord? What must he be like? The question is not, who are those sheep? But who gathered them? The question is not, which nation is this? But which God is this? And that's exactly as it should be. In Ephesians, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is praised in the heavenly realms. And he is praised in Ephesians because of the people he's gathered, his people. Through the church, God displays himself as a God like no other, one who has established his people forever. Even though the church is weak and it's struggling and it doesn't look very impressive in the eyes of the world, because it's weak and struggling, that shows how great God's glory is because he has bought them, he has preserved them and he's privileged them all the way to the end. And so the church actually reflects the glory of God. The church displays the glory of God. The church proves God's power to redeem and his power to preserve and privilege. And so when you praise God, praise him for those things. Be like David, praise him for those things. Praise him that he's great. Praise him that he's unique. Praise him that he's unlike any other God Praise him for his people. Praise him for his people. It's in his people that his greatness shines the most brightly. It's amongst his church that his greatness shines so clearly. Praise him for those things, that he's faithful to his promises and able to keep his people and establish them forever. And of course, as you praise him for those things, let that sink into your heart and let those become your own values faithful, able, establishing a people forever. See, my church, my life, it's to reflect God's glory. That as I live and God redeems me 
and he, he, he um, privileges me and preserves me to the end. That shows how great God is. And as my church, Crossroads, as, as Crossroads Presbyterian, as we go, go about struggling and failing, good times and bad, we're actually showing the glory of God because he bought us and he preserves us and he, and he privileges us. Don't be uh, conformed to the ways of this world, which says church is just what you can get out of it. Church is just whatever you need. Make it work for you. And if it's not working for you, go get something else. No, not so. Let, let these ideas shape your ideas of church. Let these values shape your values of God's people. My life, my church, it's for him. It's, it's showing and displaying his faithfulness in establishing a people. And so as you hop in your car to drive to your church, think of it like that. Think, I'm going to a place where God's glory shines. It changes your perspective on church. You don't, you don't think, um, oh, it doesn't matter if we're 10 minutes late. I don't like the stuff at the start anyway. You don't think like that. Instead, instead you think, um, you think um, I'm going to a place where God's glory is, is shown. See, um, we're, we're good at going to church for, um, for what we can get out of it, our personal encouragement, and, and getting personal encouragement is an important part of church. And We're good at going to get our personal encouragement, but more important is that we are gathering to worship God. We are gathering in a communal way to be the people that give him glory, to be the people that display his glory because of his work to bring us this far and establish us forever in his sight. Have a bigger vision of church. Have a David vision of church. He's amazed, and so he, he, he offers praise. And then finally, point three, he prays. Now, here we really get to see his heart's desire, the heart's desire of the king. Remember, that's what we're talking about. He's amazed, so he offers praise, and then finally he prays. Have a look at verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. So he says, you're amazing. That was point one. Therefore, I praise you. That was point two. And now keep your word. That's point three. You're amazing. Therefore, I praise you. And now do as you've said. You're amazing. Therefore, I praise you. Now bless this house forever. This is the logic of praise. Um, these verses keep going with the logic of praise and they do that by adding the words and now see verse 25 and now verse 28 and now verse 29 three times he says and now and that follows with him then saying do as you've said so i am amazed therefore i praise you and now do as you have said and now do as you've said and now do as you've said this is his heart's desire more than anything else this is what he wants most of all in all the world. This is, this is his, um, his yearning and his, and, his, and his heart. Now we might say, um, well, of course David would want that. He himself gets to benefit, right? It's his house that gets blessed. It's his name 
David's name that gets sort of carried on. But it wasn't, it wasn't for his sake that he wanted all of this to happen. It was for God's sake. See verse 26? He says, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. That's his heart's desire right there. That's what he wants more than anything. Uh, the very next verse, verse 27, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. Literally, he says, you've uncovered my ears to hear. Isn't that a great way? He says, oh, Lord, you've uncovered my ears to hear your promise. It's like there's like a earmuffs and you've taken off the, the safety the, the ear protectors. And I've heard that you will build me a house. And I know you can be trusted. And I know that you are true. I know all this will happen. So now that you've uncovered my ears to hear, um, I've now found my heart to pray. That's actually what he literally he says it there as well. Um, in verse 27, verse 28. No, um, verse 27. You've uncovered my ears to hear this promise that you've given me, and so I've found my heart to pray to you. In the end, basically what he prays for is the same thing that Abraham prayed for 500 years ago. Uh, Abraham, 500 years, called on God to, to keep his word, to be true to what God had promised, to bring about all that he'd said. And David's just doing the same thing. He's praying for the same stuff. In his prayer and his praise, we really get to see what David's heart is about, what, what he wants. He calls to the Lord, the same one who gave him that word, to keep his word. May this happen in you, brothers and sisters here today. May this happen in you as you go to church week by week and as you read the Bible with one another during the week and as you take time to read the Bible yourself. May it produce a longing in you for God's word to come true a longing in you for these things to happen, a longing in you for God himself to keep his promises as he has given them. Later on, Jesus would pray, glorify the Son so you may be glorified in him. Jesus actually sounds remarkably like David when he says that. He says, glorify me, glorify my house so that you might bring glory to your own name forever. Jesus wanted God to fulfill his purpose in him because through that, God would be glorified. Jesus' desire was in his prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus loved his people and he said, I've loved all those you've given me and I've not lost even one of them. Jesus said, no man has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends. See, the, the promise given to Abraham prayed for by David has now come true in Jesus. And so there is no one who loves like Jesus loves. There is no one who cares for this like Jesus cares for this. The, the promise given to Abraham, prayed for here by David, has now come true in Jesus. And so we really get to see Jesus' heart where he says, may it, may it come true in me. And so today's sermon is not about how you should love the kingdom, how you should seek first the kingdom. It's actually about the love and the joy and the heart that he has for his kingdom and his people. His desire, his heart, his joy. No one has greater love than this. Perhaps you're a very loyal person. 
I like loyal people. Um, You're steadfast, you're trustworthy, you're dutiful. I like you, I like you already. Um, You hate the bit in the Gospels where Jesus says, I'm going away. You know that bit where he says, I'm going, I'm leaving you, I'm going away. And you hate that because you really feel for Jesus' disciples. Um, Because you think, it's not good, I don't want him to go away. We've got to stay together. Uh, We've got to look out for each other. You know, it's good that you're loyal. And here's what you need to know. Jesus hasn't left you in the lurch. He hasn't abdicated. He hasn't just delegated. He's not just phoning it in. No one ever lives and breathes for the kingdom like he does. Yes, it's true he's gone away. Yes, it's true he's appointed his apostles to witness to him. But it's perhaps even more true to say that his work and his mission that he's doing in the world is his that he does by his spirit in us. He loves his kingdom in a way you or I never could. There is no greater love than this. Jesus hasn't abdicated or delegated. He, he, he lives even now interceding for you and me. He loves his people. He loves his kingdom. And so as people come and go at your church and as new things happen, you don't need to be unsettled by that. As things change in our society, you don't need to be greatly alarmed by that. Um, No way. Um, You don't need to think, um, you know, there's not many of us left. Um, We're the last few or something. Um, You don't have to think like that. Don't be unsettled. Um, He loves his kingdom in a way you or I never could, even now. So be lifted up by that and encouraged by that. And smile. Um, Sometimes loyal people can go a bit further though and their loyalty can end up being they become the martyr the martyr at church they really take things on they 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 have all this responsibility and it really feels like it's up to them to fix it and 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 if something happens they've got to fix it and when people don't follow through it's up to them they've got to come through And in that martyr, they can become resentful. More people should be helping. Where are the others? I'm the only one left. If that's you, and you can tend toward that sometimes, please remember, there is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and he says to his disciples, you are my friends. I've laid down my life for you. And you're going with him. His desire, his heart, his kingdom... His goal. 2 Samuel 7. What a wonderful chapter. You could actually put these words on the lips of Jesus, I was thinking. little experiment. Imagine that. Imagine if it wasn't David saying these words, but imagine if it was Jesus. Just listen. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing... The house of your servant will be blessed forever. Let's stand and sing.